walked down the hall to my office, sat down, pulled out that bottom left-hand drawer, and I got out my will. May I ask now what it was he did? Herschel said, ah, yes, my father. What love and potion do you possess that makes this romance grow? We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, and more. And we've got a great hour for you today. You're going to hear a story from Kim White Camp, a terrific piece called The Lap, written for her grandson. You're going to listen to Joel Ben Izzy with a story called My Father and Herschel of Ostropol. And we'll hear a little cowboy poetry too from our old friend Joe Harrington. He'll recite a piece for us called The Old Rancher. Little stories and music from Michael Reno Harrell as well, the wonderful uh, North Carolina storyteller. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And to introduce the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Lacey Ivey. Lacey, it's so great to have you with me. It's great to be here again. We're going to hear a story from uh, the West Coast storyteller, Joel Ben Izzy, lives in the Bay Area. And we just love Joel Ben Izzy's stories. Tell us what we're going to hear. I love his stories, but this one is so fun. He is just telling this story that his father had told him. His father told him a lot of stories, and this one specifically a story that his father would tell him constantly about this Herschel of Ostropol. And so that's what the story is called, is My Father and Herschel of Ostropol. <laughs> these, uh, these stories that are ostensibly family stories, right? Yes. It's always fun to hear Joel Ben Izzy telling stories in front of an audience, too. I love to hear mm -hmm. the audience react. And here's Joel Ben Izzy with My Father and Herschel of Ostropol. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Today I'd like to tell you some true stories. Now, when I say they're true stories, it doesn't mean that they actually ever happened. What it means is that there's something true about them. And they're stories that may not have actually even been true when they were first told. They may be stories that have become true in the telling. For me, a lot of those stories are around my father. My father died about 10 years ago, and I remember the things he taught me, but I think the most important thing he taught me was to laugh. And it was very important to him to teach me to laugh, especially at things that weren't funny. He said, Joel, anyone can laugh at things that are funny. To laugh at things that aren't funny, that's a skill. And it was a skill that we got to practice a lot around my house because there was a lot of stuff that happened that just wasn't funny. A lot of sickness, we didn't have much money, and we were always struggling to get by. But as we struggled, we were always just about to make it. My father was just about to get rich and famous. He was just about to become a, a world-class engineer and invent something. Or he was about to be a successful real estate agent, or just about to be a successful insurance salesman. But something always happened, and it just didn't quite come to pass. I remember he once sent away for one of those books in the mail order catalogs that uh, 
promised, guaranteed, make a million dollars. He spent $4 on the book. It came in the mail. And when he opened it, it was blank except for the first page. And there it said, How to Make a Million Dollars, Chapter 1. Buy a million of these books at $4 a piece. Sell them to all your friends at $5 a piece. Once you get to a million, you've made a million dollars. <laughs> it didn't work, but it did make us laugh. And that was worth something. We also tried to make a living for a while winning contests. My father was very big on contests. A lot of people would get those letters saying, you may have already won $10 million, and think, well, if I'd already won $10 million, I wouldn't be even opening this. But my father would open them, and he'd read them, and he'd look at the details and the rules, and each day when the mail came, we'd wait to see if we had, in fact, won the money, and we never did. We lived on those dreams, and we lived on his wits. And he laughed, and he dreamed, and he invented. For a time, he was, he was interested in the glow-in-the-darks business, 1960s, and he tried to sell things that glowed, uh, glow-in-the-dark paint, phone dials, and things. And I remember walking in one night to his office. It was dark, but everything glowed. Paint spilled on the floor, phone dials, light switches, posters. There was paint spilled on the ceiling. I don't know how he spilled the paint on the ceiling, <laughs> but it all glowed. And in the world of dreams, my father was a very rich man. But by the light of day, it just wasn't so. And as we got poorer, the dreams got bigger. And we all dreamed along with him. And we hoped and we waited. Yet when the sun came and dried up those dreams as well, we didn't lose hope. We laughed. Because that was all we could do. Looking back now, I think I can see why so many of his schemes and ideas and great plans and inventions failed. It was because they were impossible. <laughs> he was playing a game he just couldn't win. He was dreaming. He was like Don Quixote of La Mancha, traveling across the fields of Spain, battling windmills. He couldn't possibly win. But that didn't stop him. He used to say doing impossible things was good. Like Alice in Wonderland, who used to try to do several impossible things before breakfast, my father told me about the bumblebee. He said, Joel, bumblebees do impossible things. I said, how's that? He said, well, you know, science has proven that a, a bumblebee can't fly. I said, but dad, I see bumblebees flying all the time. He said, exactly. You see, a bumblebee doesn't have the wingspan to fly. Science has shown that aerodynamically. There's just not enough wing to lift up the bee's body. But the bee doesn't know this, so it goes on flying anyway. In a lot of ways, my dad reminded me of someone who he told me stories about. That was Herschel, Herschel of Ostropol. Herschel was something like a Jewish Nasruddin. Nasruddin is the great Turkish trickster. Herschel was a Jewish trickster. Many of the same stories are told about him, and I heard those from my dad. Herschel was a wandering comedian. You might call him a beggar, but he would never call himself that. He was a prankster. In fact, though, Herschel was a real person who came from Ostropol, a small village in the Ukraine, and lived by his wits. Though at one time he did have an actual job. He was the court jester for a rabbi. It was back in the days when rabbis held court, and if you had a dispute you couldn't solve, you brought it to the rabbi who would hear what everyone said, consult the holy books, and give a wise opinion. Now you may have heard of some of the more famous rabbis, like Rabbi Israel the Baal Shem Tov, who it was said had magic powers that came from knowing the secret name of God. And of course, the famed Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav, whose mystic powers are the stuff of legend. But you probably haven't heard of Rabbi Baruch. 
and that's because his decisions weren't always so wise. In fact, he was famous for almost always coming up with the wrong decision. He became very depressed, and he became a joke in his own time. They used to talk about the decisions of Rabbi Baruch, and he was so tired of being the subject of people's jokes that he decided to hire Herschel of Ostropol as a court jester. The idea being that Herschel would help distract attention from his mistakes. Unfortunately, Herschel took to the job, loved it as the only job he ever held, and spent his time making jokes about Rabbi Baruch. Now, Herschel was a quick thinker. It was said that he could tell a lie without thinking about it. In fact, someone once came up to him and said, Herschel, I'll give you a ruble if you can tell a lie without thinking. To which Herschel responded, what do you mean one? You just said two. <laughs> so it was one time that Herschel was hungry and cold, as he often was, and he was walking through the woods and he came to an inn. He smelled food, he saw a light in the inn, he thought, ah, this is my chance. He went and knocked on the door thinking they might have a scrap of bread for a poor beggar. The innkeeper looked around at him, saw who it was, said, oh, it's Herschel, forget it. Hit all the food, opened the door, said, what do you want? Herschel said, please, have you a scrap of bread for a hungry man? The innkeeper looked at him and said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm afraid we have nothing. I'd give you something if we had it, but we have no food. Herschel looked and said, you have no food? Nothing, not at all. Clean out. Herschel said, well, then if you have no food, you leave me no choice. I'll have to do what my father did. The innkeeper looked and said, well, what did your father do? Never mind, but if you have no food, I, Herschel, shall do what my father did. And his eyes began to glow like they sometimes did. The innkeeper said, well, can you give me some idea? No, never mind. If you have no food, I shall do what my father did. The innkeeper began to get worried. He was there all alone. He said, oh, just, just a moment, we might have something. He went in the back, and sure enough, he found some bread. He found some soup. He found some salad. He found some chicken. He found a whole meal. He found a feast. He spread it out before Herschel. He said, here, take this, take this. Eat, eat, eat. Just don't do what your father did. And Herschel sat, and he ate, and he feasted, and he ate with joy, and he loved it. Finally, he finished. And the innkeeper said, have you had enough? Yes, yes, I've had plenty. Then you don't have to do what your father did? My father? Well, why did you mention my father? You, you said if you didn't get some food, you'd have to do what your father did. May I ask now what it was he did? Herschel said, ah, yes, my father, when he had no food, went to bed hungry. <laughs> The only time Herschel ever had money was when he borrowed it. And it happened one time that he'd borrowed money from a friend, and he was on his way back home, counting the money to make sure he had enough to buy food for his family, clothes, and suddenly, wouldn't you know it, in the middle of the woods, a robber jumped out and said, give me your money. Oi, what could Herschel do? He gives him the money. The robber takes it, begins to go, and Herschel says, wait a minute, Mr. Robber. Yeah? Excuse me, I know it's your job to rob me. You're a robber, I understand that. But what about me? Look, I'm going to go home to my wife. She's going to say, where's the money? And I'm going to say I was robbed. Do you think she'll believe me? I don't know. Will she believe you? No, she won't believe me because I'm always lying to her. And this one time when I tell the truth, she won't believe me. And Robert said, look, I'm sorry, but what do you want me to do about it? Here's what I want you to do. Shoot me. Shoot you? Yeah, I don't mean actually shoot me. I mean shoot my clothes. 
So you shoot a hole through my clothes, and if my wife doesn't believe me, I can point to the hole in the clothes and say, look, look, see, the robber shot me as I was running away. The robber said, okay, sure, I'd be glad to help. The robber took a gun, Herschel held out his coat, bang, shot. He said, that's good, how about on this side? Bang. Maybe another one over here. Bang. This looks good. How about over here? Bang. What about the sleeve? Bang. Hat? Good. Bang. One more time on the sleeve, just for good measure to balance, then she'll have to believe me. Robert said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Why not? Just one more. I'm sorry, I'm out of bullets. Out of bullets? Out of bullets? With that, Herschel took a stick. Bang. Hit him over the head. Took the money back and went on home. My Father and Herschel of Ostropol, told by Joel Ben-Izzy here on The Appleseed. I've been listening to it along with Lacey Ivey, one of our assistant producers. I, I love those, those trickster stories, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, love, I love how they just become part of his life and he tries right. to incorporate it into everything. <laughs> and he's like, no one's going to believe me. This makes no sense. That's right. And he sets <laughs> Joel Ben-Izzy sets up the story by saying, this is a true story. Not that I mean that it actually happened, right? Mm-hmm. But that it's got some stuff about it that's that's true. Yeah, that's yeah a... I, think, I thought that was so cool. And I think that applies to like every other story. It doesn't have to necessarily be true, but it, it can make sure applies true for us. to half the stories you've heard at your most recent family reunion, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> we tend to embellish with an aim toward. Sometimes I think we embellish stories with an aim toward making them more true. And I guess what I mean by that is we we adjust the story to capture a particular value or a particular idea that we feel strongly about, right? I think that I think that's a good point, yeah. And you can take that too far, of course, but in the world of storytelling, that's kind of a lot of storyteller stock in mm-hmm. trade. And of course, you know when Joel Ben Izzy is, is is pulling your leg, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a pleasure to hear this story. Pleasure to be here with Lacey. Thanks so much for joining me, Lacey. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there's a whole lot more coming up on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Bain. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed. A moment ago, you heard my father and Herschel of Ostropol from Joel Ben Izzy. Always a pleasure to hear a Joel Ben Izzy story. That one was from a collection called Buried Treasures, A Storyteller's Journey. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear cowboy poetry from Joe Harrington, a little music and story from uh, uh, Michael Reno Harrell as well, and even something from Kim Whitecap, a terrific piece called The Lap, uh, written for her grandson. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a thought or a story for you that you can share with the people that you love, we'll share a little something with you now. This is our entry in the Radio Family Journal today. Not a memory of mine, but something that I read about and followed, as so many others did, the story of Donald Herbert and his family. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Four days after Christmas in 1995, in Buffalo, New York, a 34-year-old fireman named Donald Herbert 
rushed into a burning apartment building. He was looking for survivors of the fire. Now, this is something he'd done before. His walls at home were crowded with citations for bravery as a firefighter. But this rescue would be different. The apartment roof collapsed on top of Donald Herbert on that rescue, rendering him unconscious, pinning him under flaming debris. His fellow firefighters would pull him free and hoist him out of an upstairs window to save his life. But not before he'd been without oxygen for a long time. Those fellow firefighters would mournfully carry Donald Herbert down the ladder and into ten years of living in a semi-coma, nearly blind, unable to speak. And as he sat, unaware, his children, Donnie, Tom, and Patrick, grew from boys of 14, 13, and 11 to men of 24, 23, and 21. And the baby, Nicholas, grew to be in junior high school. Donald missed the flood of cards and letters, the news articles, the benefit parties that raised tens of thousands of dollars for the family of that comatose firefighter. And then, on a day in early May, a nurse heard Donald say, I want to talk to my wife. Just like that, after ten years of silence, a staff member called his house. Baby Nicholas, now 13 years old, answered the phone. It can't be, said Donald when he found out who was on the other end of the line. Nicholas can't talk. He's just a baby. But talk they did. The other boys came over. Donald's old firefighter friends came over. Donald recognized them all. And between them, the conversation blazed up high enough that it couldn't be put out for another 14 hours. 14 hours of rich conversation. Laughter rang through the care center that for Donald's family and friends had held only blank stares for 10 years. Donald Herbert was back. I can hardly imagine the wonder of that moment for his friends and family and, of course, for Donald himself. Now, it wound up being just a moment, just a moment of grace after that 14 hours of lively conversation with family and friends. Donald lapsed back into an existence in which he didn't interact much. Not comatose anymore, but not as talkative as he had been during that magical part of a day. And a year later, after a week that had included playing catch with his sons at the care center where he lived, an infection came on, pneumonia, and it wouldn't react to the antibiotics with which they tried to fight it. And the illness took Donald Herbert over the course of a single weekend. It had been about ten months since his miraculous awakening. And it's hard to know just what to make of a story like that. I mean, the very same world that took a firefighter in the prime of his life away from his beloved hometown and family, the very same world that left Donald Herbert in a silent stupor for a decade, is the selfsame world in which a man comatose for 10 years miraculously awakened. And it's the same world that took Herbert for good a year later. So is Donald Herbert's story a happy one or a sad one? I mean, for me, I guess, it's the story of an amazing world where crazy things happen. And while it's true that we are often blindsided by tragedy, 
we are as often blindsided by moments of grace, both small and large, and then more tragedy, and then more grace. I mean, it goes on and on. That's the story. Some things in the story have lasted. Among them, Donald's grandchildren learn about life at the feet of their parents, who remain inspired by Donald and his story. His tradition of courageous self-sacrifice for the good and safety of the people in his community. Two of Donald's sons are firefighters. Two more are police officers. Donald himself may no longer be with them, but a legacy remains. You can see it. As I think about Donald Herbert's story, I think of the winds of fortune by which I'm so often tossed and that are so often out of my control. And while I'm sometimes surprised by tragedy, I can't deny that blessings have crossed my path without any warning from time to time to blessings so chance, so random, so huge that they leave me feeling sometimes like a man long comatose, suddenly and surprisingly awakening. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. Write them down. Send them to us at our email address, theappleseed, all one word, theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. Kim Whitecamp and Joe Harrington and Michael Reno Harrell coming up this hour. But first, a conversation with a friend. Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through the things that we see on screen, and through great songs. In fact, great songs I've always looked on as kind of zip files. You just touch one, and it opens up a memory that's a lot bigger than the song, or can, right? And I am in the studio today with Mark Waite, and there's just nobody better for talking about this kind of thing <laughs> Wow! than a longtime member of our BYU radio family, host of Sound Mind and Through the Garage Door and all kinds of other musically rich things here on BYU Radio. Mark Waite, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So you finally dug to the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> Mark Waite understands... Uh, th- there is there is almost nobody who has kind of a deeper knowledge. Oh, stop! You know? Stop that! You're yes. you're Mr. Music. <laughs> uh, you're a player. Well, you, you know, you, I'm a musician. You know what I play? The stereo. The stereo. I play the <laughs> stereo very well. I'm a vir- I'm a virtuoso of the stereo, and I can't stand country music. Oh. It to me it's it's bamboo under the fingernails on a chalkboard. That's a heck of a way to begin a segment like this, right? And yet. Lucinda Williams, All oh. is Forgiven with Lucinda Williams. I will wow. listen to any, I have all of her catalog, I'm pretty sure, most or all, if not all. And I think the most evocative song, the one that really grabs me, and just the title, yeah, just slaps you right in the face. How Try this, what, what image does this conjure for you? A song named Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Oh. She's from the South. Yeah, yeah. She's from, I think, Louisiana, but I've got ancestors from Alabama, so maybe there is something in my blood. And I have 
had a gravel driveway. Yeah. Have you ever lived in a place, semi-rural or rural, where the the house was set back far enough that you that it was too way too expensive to have concrete or even asphalt for a driveway? You had a gravel road. You are describing the house I grew up in. Really? You, yeah, you are. You are describing the house I grew up in, and that's that's all you mentioned was the title, and it took me to the house <laughs> I grew up in. It's amazing yeah. how yeah. evocative that is. Well, yeah. this song took takes me back to even though I wasn't listening to it at the time, it is a, a time travel for me to yeah. third grade. I lived in Paradise, California. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it's Paradise, gone. California. Yeah. I lived there in third, fourth, and wow. fifth grades. And I went to a little school called Canyon Elementary that was an ancient schoolhouse. It only had three school rooms, so it was just first, second, and third grade. And I went to third grade there. It's burned down now. It's yeah. gone. My fifth grade schoolhouse is burned down as well. Long gone. The houses are gone. My sister went there and, and uh, took pictures of our old, old house, just a chimney standing Man. in the middle of a forest. It's a very forested. We had a little creek going down through the back of the property, and there were vines that I could swing, play Tarzan and swing <laughs> over the, uh, the little creek there. Yeah. But what really gets me is this simple little stanza from the song. She goes, there goes the screen door slamming shut. You better do what you're told. When I get back, this room better be picked up. Car wheels on a gravel road. <laughs> now, have you ever been told that when I get home, this room better be picked up? <laughs> Listen, man, you're, it's t- it, you, just I don't even need to hear Lucinda Williams. Just you <laughs> reciting the lyrics is taking me back. But the, the screen door slam, slamming shut, I don't have screen doors anymore. Yeah. But the thought of a screen door... We used to have screen doors. What's the function of a screen door so that you can leave the doors of the house open because you have no air conditioning? Yeah. I grew up without air conditioning. So you can open the house for a cross breeze, but there's always a hole. There's The screen is always torn somewhere. Yeah. But anywhere. So when I think screen doors, I think of just a half a block up the road, up Wagstaff Road from our house there in Paradise, was a little tiny grocery store. The size of a convenience store, but it wasn't a convenience store. It was a full-service grocery yeah. store. But little. They, tiny. Yeah. The size, yeah. the size of, a, of a convenience store. But so full-service that they actually had a resident butcher. Wow. And they had a screen door on the front. <laughs> and so once in a while, my dad would give me a dime or a nickel to take my little sister, because I'm in third grade, she's eight years younger, so she was two or three or four years old. Yeah. And she and I, I would walk her up to the little store and you'd open that screen door. Now in a grocery store, the hand, it was a metal plate. There was an ad for with bread. With an ad on it. For, yeah, the, the, right. the, the push plate was had an ad for Wonder Bread yeah. or something. <laughs> and so just the thought of pushing that screen door open and hearing it slam shut behind me, that was a lot of fun. Man. The... Now, and, and my dad would, so I'd take my little sister up, and she loved root beer barrels. Now, kids, there used to be this thing called penny candies. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't think penny candies exist anymore. Yeah. But for one penny, one little piece of copper, you could get a piece of candy. Yeah. And she, this little three-year-old love the root beer barrels and if I didn't buy her a root beer barrel there was going to be trouble there was going to be tears there was going to be screaming because she was a screamer you know she'd clench her fists and scream 
So I had to buy her the root beer barrels. And once, and sometimes my dad would tell me, okay, Mark, because he was trying to raise me. I was an awkward kid, backward, even more so than now. <laughs> and so his thing was to, to kick me out of the car at a gas station and go ask for directions from the gas station oh, attendant. Wow. And I had to memorize those and take them back. <laughs> and so he would say, okay, here's 50 cents. I want you to walk up to the market and give, get me a half pound of ground round. So he's in the mood for a burger. Sure, sure, yeah. Not ground chuck. Yeah. Ground round. I want a half pound of ground round. <laughs> that's, that's somebody's got to write that right song. That's, <laughs> and a couple of times I screwed it up. I didn't yeah. quite get it right because I was backward. I was nervous and fumbling and trying to explain to the butcher what it is I wanted. Yeah. You know, sometimes I was successful and sometimes I wasn't. Yeah. So just just the thought of a screen door the, slamming boy, shut, it, it just a wave of things hit The me. places we've been taken by... A single song from a single artist from a genre you don't even like. <laughs> Lucinda Williams, Wheels on a Gravel Car Road. Wheels on Car a Gravel Wheels Road. On That's a the gravel name of the album, road. too, so easy to find. Yeah. Well, what a pleasure it's been to chat with Mark Waite about a Lucinda Williams song, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Always a pleasure to chat with our old friend Mark Waite. And uh, there's a lot coming up. You're going to hear a story from Kim Whitecamp called The Lap. Up next, you won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with me on the Appleseed. Such a pleasure to have shared with you an entry in the Radio Family Journal about Donald Herbert and his family, a conversation with Mark Waite about a beloved old song, and at the top of the hour, the story from Joel Ben Izzy, My Father and Herschel of Ostropol. Up next, a story from uh, Kim Whitecamp. This is a story called The Lap, in which Kim talks about her childhood and the many laps that have held her throughout her life. Of course, now that she's grown, those memories stick with her, and she's able to recall what those people have taught her, how they help her through her hardest times. Here's The Lap, followed by a terrific rendition of the old song, You Are My Sunshine, by Kim Whitecamp, here on The Appleseed. You know, when I was little, I was so skinny, my dad said if I turned sideways and stuck out my tongue, I'd look like a zipper. Sadly, that has changed. After the birth of my last daughter, I have four grandsons, three daughters. My youngest baby's 23. And after the birth of that daughter, my, my body did not get the memo to go north. It enjoyed the south as much as I do. And I fought it for a while. I tried all kinds of things, exercise machines, weight watchers, you know, whatever, all that stuff us girls do. And finally, about two years ago, I said, you know what, forget this battle. You know, the quest for perfection that is put before women is so difficult in magazines and billboards. I mean, you know, the guys, they get all wrinkly and they call it rugged. You know, what if you looked at a woman and said, oh, she's looking good. She's rugged. It's a rugged look, you know. You know, when men get fat, they say, oh, he's getting husky. He's burly. Could you imagine if they said, oh, baby, you're looking burly. You know, it's not fair. And so uh, I decided just to stop fighting it. And I decided that every year I'd come up with a new motto to celebrate my voluptuousness. Last year was, uh, if you can't lose it, decorate it. <laughs> Sparkle earrings. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. For 2012, it is, 
Rich foods, fatty foods, sugary foods, they are our destiny, for they too shape our ends. (laughs) Well, not too long ago, my six-year-old grandson was at my house, and he was running somewhere. I don't know where he was running to. Do you remember when life was so wondrous that you ran into it every day? We need to remember that. And I think he was running to watch the water in the dog dish or something like that. And I snatched him up, put him on my lap. I said, let Nanny hold you for a minute. Oh, you know, he struggled a little bit. I said, no, come here. Just lay back, lay back. And I wanted to cradle him. And he said, Nana, he said, I'm not a baby anymore. I said, oh, honey, I know. I said, but soon you're going to be too big. And I won't be able to hold you like this anymore. Just let Nana hold you like this for a minute. With a sigh, he gave in. He nestled down in my lap and put his head deep in the crook of my arm. And he looked up at me and he said, Nana, your lap is perfect. I said, baby, you wait right here. And I lifted him off and put him on the couch. I said, Nana's going to be right back. Don't you go running anywhere. I walked down the hall to my office, sat down, pulled out that bottom left-hand drawer, and I got out my will. (laughs) As I held him there in my lap, I thought about what he said and how precious it was, how honest and pure the heart was of which it came from. And I started to think about the laps that had held me over the years. Of course, the first lap that I thought of was my mom. My mom is about five foot tall, reed thin. Sitting in my mom's lap is like sitting on a futon. She is tiny. I remember one time we were leaving for church and uh, we went out the back door and we would walk down the grass and onto the driveway and she was in front of me and her foot caught the lip of the driveway and she went flying forward in what was going to be a full-on face plant. I reached forward, grabbed the back of her Sunday dress, lifted her up and put her back down. That's how small my mama was. Still is. I was six. And then, of course, the next lap I think of, obviously, is my father. And I get conflicting emotions and memories when I think of my dad's lap. One of the main memories I have is that when he would come home and stand by the kitchen bar while my mother would reheat his dinner, I would stand there and look at his hands. They were grease under the nails and nicks and cuts. And my mom used to say, if you want to know how much your daddy loves you, look at his hands. He works hard for you. And then my dad would exit and go into the one back room where there was a rocking chair, and he'd say, Kimmy! Come here. My dad was a big, burly man. And uh, when the girls in the family reached a certain age, he had a little difficulty connecting. Wasn't sure what to do with us. And so he would go in and call me in, and, and he'd put me on his lap on the rocking chair and rock real fast and go, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy. Okay, go get your sister. <laughs> and I would go look for my sister, and she'd be hiding under the bed or behind the door, and she'd be like, Like, Dad, she's in here. (laughs) That was my dad's way of connecting with us. The other memory I have of his lap, though, is being asked to lay over it, hands in the front so they didn't get hit, and a well-placed, firm swat would be planted there for some behavior that was not proper. 
It doesn't matter how you feel about that kind of punishment. It's too late for me. Let it go. And then there are the elapsed that we tried to stay out of, that we tried to escape from, but it was not possible. My Aunt Louise was a broad woman with arms that swung and undulated. And when you would run by her, you tried to keep wide berth because if you were within reach, she would snatch you up. And whenever she grabbed a hold of you, she didn't put you on her lap. You went into her lap. And folds of flesh would mold around you like a Tupperware yellow jello mold. And her bosom would wrap around your neck. And all your brothers and sisters and cousins would stop playing great fear expressed on their face. And they'd start saying, keep your head up. Keep your head up. And as the flesh would surround you, you'd lift and lift and lift your head up until it settled in and you could breathe and you put up with it. You put up with it because going into her lap meant one of many wonderful things. A warm cookie she just made and she'd give it to you and say, you're my sweet cakes, baby. You're my sweet cakes. And you would eat and crumbs would fall. Sweet. Or she would start telling you things that my mom had done. And my mom tried to make us believe she was a saint. But Aunt Louise would start saying things. Well, when Lini was little one time, and my mother would say, Now, Aunt Louise, don't you start telling those stories about me. And Aunt Louise would start to laugh. It was like a blender. Now listen, I went to, to church every time the doors were open. I had a, I, my name was on the Sunday school chart with a whole row of never missed stars, but I never prayed more or more fervently than I did in my Aunt Louise's lap. Oh God, please don't let her have a hot flash while I'm in here. Please don't let her have a hot flash while I'm in here. You laugh, but one time my sister went in her lap at 46 pounds, came out at 38. And then when she was done with you, she would extract you from her lap and there would be a sucking sound. <laughs> and she'd put you on the ground and she'd pot you on the bum and say, now go on, girl, get on with it, get on with it, go on. And as you would run away from her, the smell of rose de toilette swirling around you, you were grateful that you were there. My Aunt Louise made me appreciate times that were pressing and times that were fragrant in life. Life is hard and there are days, I swear there are days where I smell on the edge of wind the scent of roses and I can hear her saying, now come on girl, get on with it, go on. It's my Aunt Louise. And then there are the laps that we wish, wish we could sit in or wish we would have sat in. George Clooney. My report cards in elementary school came in a butterscotch colored envelope. The report cards themselves were dentist office green and Easter egg yellow. 
I loved getting my report card. Not because of the grades. The kids already know what our grades are. The grades are for the parents. I would grab my report card, go to my desk, slide it out and flip it over because back then there would be handwritten comments. Not generic match the number to 28 kids. Real comments. And from kindergarten all the way through to fourth grade, my report card comments said the same. If Kimberly would not talk so much, if Kimberly would apply herself more, if Kimberly would entertain her work as much as she tries to entertain the class, if Kimberly would spend as much time at her desk as she does mine telling me stories. On report card day, I'd go home and get in the long line of kids, and the minute my mother saw me, she'd start clucking her tongue and shaking her head and take the report card. And she'd write a comment and slide it back in and say, take this back to your teacher. And I never discussed with her what she wrote because that would encourage a conversation I did not want to have. <laughs> and the next day I'd get on the bus, find an empty seat, turn towards the window, reach in my backpack, pull out the report card, and I would read what she had written. And it was always the same. We've tried everything. <laughs> Until I found Mrs. Ort, or maybe actually she found me. Mrs. Ort was a ramrod straight thin woman in her early 60s, pencil skirts, button down white blouses, sensible rubber soled shoes, straight red painted lips, high teased hair, perfect English and diction. She did not call me Kimmy, Gibbler, Carrot Top, or Kim. She called me Kimberly. And we were in her class about two weeks when I did something to draw her attention to me. And in front of all of my peers, without a wink, blink, or a moment's hesitation, she said, Kimberly, you have a gift. It is the gift of gab. And with it, you could rule the world. I was like, I knew it. <laughs> And for the rest of that school year, if there was something that needed read, she'd have me read it. If there was something that needed acted out, she'd let me act it out. She got me into giving the announcements on the speaker system. She was the best teacher in the whole world. And you know what? On report card day, I had never been so happy after that first semester to go get my report card. And when she called my name, I ran up and smiled and she handed it to me with great flourish. And I went back to my desk. I could not wait to read what she had written. I slid it out of the envelope, and there, in her perfect penmanship, she had written, Kimberly is a pure delight. <laughs> I got on the bus, my foot was tapping, I held that report card to, actually to my chest the whole day, but I got on the bus, I was so excited to get home. When we got home, the kids were lined up, I pushed them out of the way, and I said, no mom, look at my report card, look at my report card. And she took it from me, a puzzled look on her face, she slid it out, turned it over, and looked at me and looked at the report card. She turned and for a moment I heard her sniffing. <laughs> she turned around and handed it back. I could not wait to read the comment. I waited till the next day, got on the bus, turned towards the window, slid out the report card and underneath Mrs. Ort's comment she had written in her perfect penmanship, what are you drinking? <laughs> Oh, 
You know, when you're in fifth grade, things are popping out all over. You don't know who you are. Should I wear deodorant and brush my hair and walk cool? Or should I run, my hair knotted, blowing in the wind, wiping snot on my sleeve and picking up anything that looks interesting? What am I? And it would have been so uncool to throw my arms around her and sit in her lap and thank her. But sometimes we do not understand the value of a moment until it becomes a memory. And now, knowing what I know now as an adult, if I could go back, I would get at the end of the recess line, and as the kids filed out through the hallway, I would lag back and walk into that empty room. And I would walk up to Mrs. Ort's desk, and as that chair would creak as she turned, I would get in her lap and throw my arms around her and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, for giving me the gift of understanding that I do not need to fit into anyone's box. For centuries, man has tried to duplicate the perfection of the lap, and we failed. There is no couch with perfectly placed pillows of rest that echo the heartbeat of love. There is no chair whose arms will wrap around you with a warmth that permeates your soul. There is no settee that will push back a wisp of hair, dry a tear, and speak hope and dreams into your spirit. The first throne of kings was a lap. The first seat of presidents and dignitaries was a lap. Some of the first creative thoughts of musicians, poets, writers, storytellers, artists happened in a lap. I looked down at my grandson and I said, baby, I said that is the sweetest thing that anyone has ever said to me. And I sang to him. You are my sunshine My only sunshine You make me happy when skies are gray You'll never know, dear How much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away The other night, dear as I lay sleeping, I dreamt I held you in my arms. When I awoke, dear, I found, found I was only dreaming. So I hung my My only sunshine You make me happy oh, When skies are gray You'll never know, dear Just how 
how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. Kim Whitecamp with The Lap, as well as a terrific rendition of the old song, You Are My Sunshine. What a beautiful piece of music. Up next, we've got a story from cowboy poet Joe Harrington. In fact, he'll tell this story in a form of a cowboy poem. It's called The Old Rancher, and it talks about, oh, reminiscing about stories from those who have years of wisdom tucked under their belts. In this story, Joe Harrington describes people as grand libraries full of stories that are unique to them. Here's The Old Rancher from Joe Harrington on The Appleseed. I love old people. I love to sit at their feet and listen and learn. You know, each one is like a, a grand library, and when they pass on, it's like that library just burns to the ground. And if nobody's been listening or learning, it's such a waste. Now, age has a way of rearranging the books in that library, and that can be sad. But when it's viewed in the right context, sometimes it can be wonderfully humorous. The old cowboy was a crusty coot, as seasoned ranchers go. He was hard as nails and tough as hide from sun and winter snow. Now, he'd spent his years on horseback where he could do it all, and amongst the toughest of the cowboys, he stood strong and tall. But now he's aged and seasoned well, his youth behind well spent. His legs are bow, his back is sore and just a little bent. We visit now on his front porch where he tells me all he's done. Of course, he talks about his horses and how he's just turned 91. His wife came out and joined us. She rocked her chair and smiled. A graceful, gentle lady that I'm sure could not be riled. We talked the afternoon away, and when I stood to leave, his old eyes pleaded I should stay. He reached up and took my sleeve. Honey, he said to his loving wife, get this young sprout a snack, and while you're at it, darling, come here and scratch my back. So before she left, she rubbed his back and talked of days gone by, of dogs and kids and lack of rain how it been so hot and dry. Well, you're right, my precious pumpkin, this heat and dust is tough. But remember back in 23? Now, honey, that was rough. And did you notice, darling, the newsman said it'd rain? Ooh, ouch, my little dumpling, I need something for this pain. Now, the way he called his wife, I thought, was sweet and rather rare. Honey this and sweetie that with such tender love and care. Why, if I could just grasp the secret to what makes this love light burn for 60 years of marriage, why, for this I'd pay to learn. So before I left, I found my chance when he had gone out back to ask my simple question. Ma'am, what keeps your love on track? I've never heard him use your name, I said, just sweet words. Ma'am, I gotta know. What loving potion do you possess that makes this romance grow? A sly grin came across her face. She said, for years it's been the same. Don't be fooled by what you hear. The old cooch just plumb forgot my name. <laughs> 
Joe Harrington with a piece called The Old Rancher here on the Apple Seed. We're going to wrap up with a nostalgic tune called My Town, written by the great storyteller and songwriter Michael Reno Harrell. We'll wrap up with this piece today. My Town on the Apple Seed. Rusty hinges on the doors Dusty papers on the floor Scattered dreams and nothing more in my town We made our homes there on that hill And we gave our life's blood to the mill But now it's quiet And still in my town Like we did 
spirit has finally come unwell The wind is now the only sound Just me and these ghosts walking around in my town My Town from the terrific songwriter and storyteller Michael Reno Harrell. A pleasure to bring you that piece along with The Old Rancher from Joe Harrington and The Lap from Kim Whitecamp. Started off the hour today, of course, with My Father and Herschel of Ostropol from Joel Ben Izzy. Always a pleasure to have you with us. Find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or Google the Appleseed podcast for something new just about every day. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.